Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one eternal Lord. Three persons existing from all eternity in perfect love and fellowship, sharing one divine life, will, and purpose. We give you praise, honor, thanks, and glory. You created us in your power and wisdom. You support us and sustain us in your providence and care. You govern us in your sovereignty and goodness. You have saved us by your grace and mercy. And you have called us to share in and imitate your holiness. O most holy and triune God, you show your glorious power in all you have made. The stars and seas are but the works of your fingers. You have rescued us from ruin out of your bounteous love with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. O Father, we praise You for You have authored our creation and redemption. You have written the story of our lives in Your book before we were even born. O Son, we thank You for by Your incarnation and birth into the world as a man and by Your death and resurrection, You have become our mediator and Savior. O Holy Spirit, we praise You for You nourish us through Word and sacrament making known to us this great salvation, uniting us in love and fellowship with one another. O Holy Trinity, keep us always in Your tender loving care. Keep us in Your communion. Keep us in this faith with all Your church. Receive our worship today as we praise You for Your excellence and greatness, Your creating and redeeming love. For You are ever one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, world without end, Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text for this morning is the second word as it's found in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, you've made us in your own image and likeness. We pray that you would teach us what it means to live as your image in the world, honoring your image in one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's sermon has a very practical, raises a very practical question for us here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. Should we rip down the banners? The banners, after all, depict earthly things, lambs, doves. They depict heavenly things. I see a star on the back one. I see a fire here right in front of me. That's an earthly thing. And the second commandment forbids us, it might seem, to make anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Some people think that it means we shouldn't make those things in order to represent God, but it doesn't actually say that. And some have read it to mean 
that we can make no representational art. And if we can't make, is that, is that's what the command means, then it forbids representational art of anything, whether it's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Those are the only places that are in the Bible. And if we can't make images of anything in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, we can't make images of anything. Some have thought that it doesn't prohibit making images, but it prohibits making images and placing them in a place of worship. So we can have art in our home or art in our museum. We can take a a fire banner or a star banner or a lamb with a cross banner and put it up at home, but it doesn't belong here among us when we gather for worship. If either of those are true, then the second commandment is immediately, almost immediately contradicted by what the Lord says a little bit later in the book of Exodus. You shall not make images of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. A few chapters later, the Lord says, make two cherubim of gold. But Lord, cherubim are heavenly things. And didn't you just tell us not to make heavenly things? And weave those cherubims into the curtains of the tabernacle. Make pomegranates of scarlet and purple material and put them at the ends of the robe of the high priest. A pomegranate is an earthly thing. How can you make an image of it? How can you make, it some, make something that resembles it, a likeness of it? If this commandment prohibits making images or likenesses of anything, then it's contradicted later in Exodus. If this commandment forbids us to have images of things in heaven above or on the earth beneath or under the wa- in the waters under the earth in our places of worship, as many people believe, then it is immediately contradicted as well. Because what the Lord wants to do with those gold cherubim is put them right in the heart of the sanctuary of Israel, the place of worship. The priest goes in and out of the holy place, and he's wearing a robe that has pomegranates at the bottom, which represent earthly things. Is this a violation of the second word? Are we looking at two different sources in the book of Exodus? One who is anti-iconic and one is pro-iconic? Or should we let the rest of the book of Exodus tell us what this passage actually, what this command actually means? This command does not forbid us to make things that are likeness, likenesses of things in heaven above and the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. This commandment does not forbid us to make likenesses of such things and place them in our place of worship. We don't have to tear down the banners. I'm not going to, the elders will be happy that I'm not going to lead an iconoclastic assault on the banners at the end of the service. We don't have to do that. The Lord himself required certain images within the place of Israel's worship, and that's an entirely appropriate thing for us to do as well. The commandment is not about making things. It's not about the location of those things. The commandment is about what we do with the images and the likenesses that we make. The commandment should be read as a whole, not just you should not make any graven image or any likeness of anything, but it should be read as you should not make such things in order to prostrate yourself to them or serve them, to bow down to them or serve them. These are typical words for worship throughout the Old Testament. They're words to describe what the priests do in the temple. They prostrate themselves before the Lord. Israel at certain times prostrates themselves before the Lord. And they serve the Lord in his tabernacle. 
in his house. In the immediate context, what the commandment is forbidding is the kind of thing that ancient priests did in virtually every other culture and every other religion in the ancient world. If you had a temple in the ancient world, and most people did have temples, the whole point of having a temple was to put an image in the temple. That's how you know that the God was there. The image represented the presence of the God in his house. And so priests would do service to the image as a way of doing service to the God. In the morning, the priests would open up the doors. I'm going to have to try to shake the image awake, wake him up. He needs breakfast, so they bring him his food. They bring in a tray of food. He may need to be dusted up a little bit. They dust him up a little bit. When he goes on procession, he needs to be clothed in fine garments so they can process the image through the streets, and everyone can get a glimpse of the image of the God, not just the priests who are serving him inside the temple. At the end of the day, it's been a hard day. He's eaten. He's presided over the storm. He's gone out on a procession, and the God has put the bed The priest closed the door. He spends his day, the priests spend their day, bowing down to, prostrating themselves before, and serving the image that's inside the temple. That's what ancient priests did. That was their job description. And what the Lord is forbidding is precisely those actions done to an image in his house. It's not that they can't have cherubim on the inner sanctuary. It's that they are not to serve those cherubim as if they were the presence of the Lord himself. You notice what what the Lord is forbidding here is specifically a certain set of bodily actions. The Lord does not say you can bow down to an image as long as in your heart you're worshiping me and not the image. He doesn't say you can serve the image as long as you think you're serving me and not the image. He prohibits certain kinds of liturgical actions. God cares about what we do with our bodies. Of course, our actions always embody some kind of intention. You know, I can I imagine if a priest was inside the holy place and he dropped a loaf of bread and he bent down and picked it up and bowed down to the lampstand on the other side of the temple, that wouldn't be a violation of the second word. If he went to the lampstand and prostrated to it and served it as if it were the presence of the God, that would be a violation. If he's just picking up a loaf of bread, it's not. So, of course, intentions are important. But this commandment does not really deal with intentions. It deals with our actions. And the Lord is forbidding us to use our bodies in certain ways in worship. Ancient people probably did not think that the images in their temples were identical to the gods that they represented. Maybe some people did, but what we can tell from at least literate people from the ancient world, they could distinguish between the image and the God who inhabited the image. One of the ways we can tell that is because they had rituals that they performed on the image so that the God would come in and inhabit the image. The image would be quickened. They had quickening rituals. The the image they know is just a piece of carved wood or it's a piece of molten metal, and they need to make it alive. The God needs to make it alive, and so they go through a series of rites to quicken or enliven the image. And so they could say, we're not worshiping the image. Of course not. We're just serving the image because our God inhabits the image, because our God, the the image is a kind of sacrament of the image. And so we serve the image as a way of serving the Lord. Yahweh forbids Israel to do that. Whatever their intentions, whether they identify the image with Yahweh or not, 
They're not allowed to prostrate to the image or do service, liturgical service to the image. It doesn't matter what they're thinking. It doesn't matter if they think they're doing it for the Lord. In fact, that's what Israel often does. When Aaron makes a golden calf at the foot of Sinai, he doesn't say, look here, a golden calf, an Egyptian god to worship. He says, look here, a golden calf. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Let's worship the God of the Exodus using this golden calf as a way of worshiping him. The Lord wasn't pleased. That violated the second word. It doesn't matter whether you think you're worshiping, uh, whether the piece of wood or metal that you're worshiping is, uh, is the God. You're still using that as a means of worship of a God, and that's what the Lord forbids. When we get clear about what this commandment prohibits and what it doesn't prohibit, we can see why, uh, we can see that some Christians in our day continue to violate the second word. Some Christians are doing exactly what the second word prohibits. And this is especially widespread. It's central to the piety of Eastern Orthodox Christians. Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians have icons, icons of, the saint, of a saint, icons of Jesus, icons of Mary, and they do service to those icons. They kiss the icons. They bow to the icons. They set up incense and candles in front of the icons. And they think that by doing that, they're having some kind of contact with the person or the being who's depicted in the icon. The holiness of a saint inhabits the icon, and if you kiss the icon and do service to the icon, then you share in the holiness of the saint. You participate in that through the means of the icon. It becomes, again, a kind of sacrament of the presence of that saint or the presence of Christ. Of course, every Orthodox Christian would say, I'm not worshiping the picture. I'm not committing an act of idolatry. I know this is just paint on a piece of wood. I know that I'm try- what I'm trying to do is worship God or contact a saint, participate in the holiness of the saint through this image. It's a window. It's not the thing that I'm worshiping. But that is precisely what the Lord prohibits in the second word. The Lord prohibits us from bowing down to and doing liturgical service with, the, with an image or an icon of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth as the object or target of that service and that prostration. Of course, Orthodox people have an explanation for why this second commandment no longer applies. They say that the incarnation has changed the game. The Son of God has become flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we see His glory. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John begins his first epistle by talking about the word of life that not only becomes visible, but becomes tangible and audible. We have touched the word of life in flesh. We have seen the word of life in flesh. We've heard him speak human words in a human voice. And for Orthodox Christians, that means that this second word no longer prohibits contact with God through images. God has made himself visible in Christ, and that visibility is kind of stretched out to include the images, the icons that they venerate. That's not the way the apostles think about the incarnation. In 1 John, 
he does describe the incarnation in extremely realistic terms. We had contact with the word of life, the creative word of life, the word that gives life to everyone and everything. We could touch him. We heard him speak. You want to have fellowship with him? We had fellowship with him. How does John say we should have fellowship with him? We who are not privileged to be with Jesus during his earthly ministry. How should we have fellowship with him? As 1 John 1 goes on, he doesn't say, and you too can touch him. You too can see him. While he was around, we painted some pictures. And now we have pictures that depict Jesus just as he was. How does John say we should have fellowship with the Father uh, now that he's shown himself in Jesus Christ? He says, you have fellowship with the Father by having fellowship with us, the apostles, and you have fellowship with us, the apostles, by listening to our proclamation. He begins by talking about the tangibility and the visibility and the audibility of the word of life and almost immediately turns to the preaching of the gospel, to proclamation. He turns from the eye and the hand to the ear. You want to have fellowship now that Jesus has gone into heaven and he has sent his spirit. How do you have fellowship with the Father? By listening. By hearing the word proclaimed. Then you have fellowship with the Father through the Son. I've been using the word sacrament to describe what ancient people thought about their images and what Orthodox people tend to think about their icons. And I use that deliberately because we too have sacraments. God is not saying... There is no way for me to communicate my life to you through physical means. God is not saying, I, you just you, as long as you can kind of escape physicality, then you can have fellowship with me. That's not the logic of the second word. That's not the way we're supposed to act, to try to escape our bodies, try to escape the world around us. That's not how we have fellowship with God. We, too, have physical means, sacraments, physical things that are means of communicating with God. How do we know they're means of communicating with God? How do we know that when we're baptized, the water unites us to Christ, unites us to his death? How do we know when we eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper, as we will later? How do we know that Jesus gives himself to us, that that communion in the cup is a communion in his blood? The communion in the loaf is a communion in the body of Christ. How do we know that? Because God said it. This is my body. This is my blood. The bread that you break, is it not communion in the body of Christ? The wine that you bless, the cup that you bless, is it not communion in the blood of Christ? God has promised to meet us in the water, in the bread, and in the wine. These are the physical means that the Lord has promised, where the Lord has promised to be present. He's given us his address. And it's not a picture. It's not an icon. And it's not even something we're to venerate. That's not what the purpose of the bread and the wine or the water is. The water is poured on us. We eat the bread. We drink the wine. And through those physical sacraments, those physical means, we have communion with God in Christ. Those who are seeking God through pictures, images, and, uh, and graven images and icons are seeking God in places he's not promised to be. And their search will be fruitless because God has not promised to be present there. But the second word says it's more than fruitless. It's dangerous. Notice how the Lord supports this command. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Who are the ones who hate the Lord? In the context, they're the ones who are trying to access him or worship him by serving and worshiping images. Those are the ones who hate God. And if you worship and serve an image, you're arousing the Lord to jealousy. That's what he says. I'm a jealous God. Don't pay attention to images. Pay attention to me, not to the images, or else I will be aroused to jealousy. I've said uh, a couple of a couple months ago when I started the series of the Ten Words that the Lord is addressing Israel as his son. The Ten Words are a father-son talk from the Lord Yahweh as father to his son Israel. But here we have another perspective on the Ten Words. The word jealousy brings up a different picture of our relationship, of Israel's relationship to Yahweh. It's not a father-son relationship. It's a husband-wife relationship. And the Lord is saying, if you, uh, if you serve, try to serve me by serving images, if you try to bow and humble yourself before me by bowing and humbling yourself to images, then that's a violation of our covenant marriage. I think the picture is something like this. You might imagine maybe, maybe a, a Black Mirror episode. Those of you who know who Black Mirror. Uh, a Black Mirror episode where a man spends his entire uh, life, his entire married life, talking to uh, intimately talking to, communicating with a picture of his wife. His wife is sitting over on the other side of the room, but he talks to a picture. Would that arouse his wife to jealousy? Should. <laughs> she wants to be the one he's talking to, not the picture. And that's how the Lord sees image veneration. Bow to the image. Serve the image. Treat the image as it's a kind of sacrament or gateway to commune with God, and the Lord is aroused to jealousy and he will visit iniquity to the third and fourth generations. Well, suppose you're not tempted by orthodox iconography. Suppose you're not tempted to bow down before images in worship. Does that mean the second word has nothing to say to you? We're done with that. It's, it's good. We can move on to number three now. I think the second word still has important implications for all of us as Christians in our age and in every age. In our age in particular, the second word directs us to a certain kind of guidance, a certain way of life. You could say a certain primary sense that guides us through life. We live in an age of spectacle. You don't have to go to Times Square, but Times Square is kind of the, uh, kind of the epitome. Every possible flat surface in Times Square is covered with pictures, moving pictures, something that's supposed to arrest your attention. You go through an airport and there are things flashing at you everywhere. Every inch, every spare surface is covered with images trying to draw your attention, trying to sell you things, trying to give you a dream of some good life, trying to entice you to that dream. And it's, we really are affected by the images that surround us. We might not think so. But it's not too long ago that there was a several-week hubbub in the United States uh, over a young man wearing a Make America Great hat standing in front of a Native American who was drumming. Maybe you remember this. It's been a, it's been a couple months. Uh, so the news travels, I mean, news, news moves fast. But you had it two weeks where the nation's attention was riveted 
on, what was it initially, five seconds of video? Not even that. We had an image of a kid uncomfortably smiling, I thought, (laughs) at an American Indian, Native American, who's beating on his drum. We didn't know the story, but everyone's outraged. Everyone has some opinion about it. We have nothing to do with that situation. We don't know anything about that situation, but that doesn't keep us from forming strong opinions based on a momentary glimpse of the situation. We do react to the images that surround us. Our relations with each other are often mediated through screens and devices. Sometimes that's enormously helpful. We have ways of connecting with people that we're not proximate to. But sometimes we use it as a way of avoiding tangible contact. We're guided by vision. Our relations are mediated through visible means rather than through tangible means, rather than touching one another. Get a virtual hug for your kids. The second word is is founded on a contrast between the eye and the ear. That was the point of the Deuteronomy 4 passage that we read as an Old Testament lesson. When you came to Sinai, you saw the cloud. You heard a voice. You did not see an image. Listen to the voice and don't make an image because you didn't see one. The eye is an organ of judgment and scrutiny. The eye is an organ of criticism in the Bible. The ear is an organ of obedience. In fact, hearing is virtually synonymous with obedience in the Bible. The ear responds to living things. You come across a dead elephant in the jungle, you'll walk right up to it and poke it. You might poke it from a distance to make sure it's dead, but it's not going to hurt you. You can see it. But when you hear a living elephant crashing through the jungle, that's a different experience. You have the, the, the ear sound as a sign of life. The fact that somebody can speak or the, the fact that something can make noise is a sign that it's a living thing or at least there's some living thing behind it. We're guided by the ear because we're guided by faith and not by sight. We're not yet in the place where we have face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact with our Savior. We will. Someday we will be face-to-face. But now, even in the age of spectacle, we're guided by the ear. I think especially in the age of spectacle, we need to be guided by the ear. Form our opinions, not based on what we see flashing past us on the many screens that we see. Not form our dreams for the future on the basis of the flashing images. Form our dreams and our hopes on the basis of what we hear. I think the most fundamental foundation of the second word has to do with this notion of the image. God forbids Israel to prostrate to and to serve images because he has made his own image. The creation account in Genesis 1 is like a great temple building project. If a king was building a temple in the ancient world, he would build the, build the external uh, frame and shape of the temple. He'd fill it with all the uh, tools and the furnishings of a temple. At the climax, he would make the temple the temple of the God by placing the image of the God in the temple. And that image would represent the God. That image would be a sign that the God was inhabiting the temple. And then the priests could start doing their service to the image as a way of doing service to God. Our creator, the true creator of heaven and earth, has built the world as a cosmic temple. He forms a three-story house, and then he fills it with all kinds of things. And then at the climax of the creation week, he deliberates. 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he sets up Adam and Eve, man as male and female, as his images in his cosmic house. If we seek to have contact with God through images that we make, that's inherently dehumanizing. It's inherently alienating. We're attributing to the image what should, what is in fact true of us. We say that is the mediator of God's presence. No, you are. The spirit inhabits you. You are the image of God. You are the likeness of God. And the service that you do to the image of God should be service that you do to one another, not to some artificial manufactured image. Don't bow to Baal. Don't kiss Baal. Bow to your superiors. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't rise to serve images as an ancient priest would, but do stand in the presence of your elders and superiors. Don't give food and drink to your image thinking you're serving God. Give food and drink to the image that God has made, your hungry brother or sister or hungry stranger. Don't clothe the image. Clothe the naked. Clothe the naked brother. Don't talk to your wife's picture. Talk to your wife. Don't expect a word from the icon to come to you. Listen to the words that are spoken to you by other human beings, by your pastor, by your friends, by your spouse, by your kids, by your parents. Talk to the living Lord when you pray. Don't try to talk to a picture that somehow gets you a special track to the living Lord. Talk to Jesus. Talk to the Father through Jesus. Jesus is the living image of God, the eternal image of his Father. That's the image that we venerate. And we see that same image in one another. And so we venerate one another and we serve one another and we bow to one another and we do all the kinds of service to one another that an ancient priest would do to an image because Jesus' image is in each one of us because God has placed his image in us. In the end, the second word is an Old Testament way of stating Jesus' second great commandment. The first great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second great commandment and the second word state the same. Honor the image of God in one another. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the exact representation of your character that he images you perfectly to us. And we thank you that by your spirit we are being remade into your image, which is the image of your Father. We pray that you would give us grace to honor one another uh, as images of God, to speak to one another as images of God, to help and serve one another as your image, and so honor you and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and that sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, through whom you have made known your truth and your grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit our comforter, 
for the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, for the means of grace, the word, baptism, and the Eucharist, for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. O Father, save, defend, and grow your church purchased with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through their ministry. Give her ruling elders who shepherd the flock wisely and deacons who show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Fill her with mercy for the lost and compassion for the poor. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. O Lord, we humbly intercede before you on behalf of all sorts and conditions of people that you would be pleased to make your ways known unto them, your salvation to all nations. Send forth your light and your truth into all the earth. Raise up, we pray, faithful servants to labor in the gospel at home and in distant lands that the light of the gospel might fill the earth. We especially pray for persecuted saints throughout the world, our brothers and sisters who because of their loyalty to Christ are attacked and slandered and made to suffer. Throw down the false gods, the idols who lead people and cultures into bondage. Protect and provide for your people in every nation that your church might flourish and that Christ might inherit the nations as you have promised to him. We especially pray for Peru Mission and the work of Wes Baker. We pray for the Church of Christ in Porto Alegre, Brazil. We pray for the work of the Joint Eastern European Project, for Ralph Smith and Mitaki Evangelical Church in Tokyo, Japan, for Pastor Sansanich and his church in the Ukraine, Pastor Pavel Bartosik and his church in Poland, and for all who seek to proclaim your good news and spread Christ's reign to the end of the earth. Lord, we ask you to show mercy to our nation, these United States. Grant our land repentance that this nation might be discipled in righteousness, truth, and honor. Grant us leaders who fear you and love your word and who rule in wisdom. Undo wicked laws and unjust judgments. Give us grace that we might turn from the idolatries that stain in our culture and destroy lives. Freely grant your blessings to us, your church in this land, that as a people set apart by your word, our holy lives might witness to your gospel. Be a shield of protection for us that our freedoms might be preserved and that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Rebuild marriage and true family life in our culture. Help us to turn from selfish lusts, from greed, from violence, from dishonesty, from laziness and sloth from pride, from willful blindness. Forgive our foolish trust in military might and technology and in elected leaders. In the slaughter of the unborn in our land, make our laws and our courts reflective of your justice. In the senseless violence and bloodshed in our cities, in the strife between different classes and races who ought to live together in peace in Christ Jesus. And through your people, make provision for the poor and needy, that they too might flourish. Only you can do these things, great God, in your power and in your wisdom. Lord, we are deeply grateful for the land we live in, for its, its heritage, its freedoms, its prosperity, its abundance of resources, its diversity. 
But we also know in many ways we have abandoned our heritage. We have forgotten you in the midst of our prosperity. We now call evil good and good evil. And so we ask that you would show us mercy. Do not judge us as our sins deserve. Be kind and patient that many may be brought to repentance. Spare our cities for the sake of the righteous. Father, we pray against the evil of abortion in our land. May those who have participated in abortion repent and know your forgiving mercy, for indeed you are a God of grace. May those pregnant even now with a child they don't want see the value of that life, and may they find the strength and support they need. May men help these women with the children they have fathered taking on their role as providers and protectors. May our legislators, our governor, our judges, and all in authority in our state and beyond work for justice on behalf of the unborn. Lord, we do thank you for the law passed in our state in this past week, and we ask you to bring good from it. But Father, even more than changing laws, we ask that you would change hearts. We pray that you would show mercy to us all. Father, we pray that we might kiss the Son as a people, and that our rulers might kiss the Son, as David advised all of us, lest the Son's wrath flare up against us. Father, may we all know the peace of Jesus Christ, and may King Jesus reign unchallenged over these United States and indeed over every nation under heaven. O Lord, bless the ministries of this church, Trinity Presbyterian, that we may be the kind of church you call us to be, the kind of church our city needs us to be. May we worship you in the beauty of holiness so you are enthroned upon our praises. May the mouths of babes and infants among us silence the foe and the avenger. May your word thunder from our pulpit in truth and with power. We thank you for another year of Sunday school, and we especially thank you for the teachers who have shared their gifts and knowledge with us as a congregation. May you use our small groups and Bible studies. May you use Wednesday Vespers. May you use Theopolis. May you use all the gatherings of this congregation and of our people to edify and equip saints for service in the world. May we prosper and know your peace. May you provide for us abundantly, granting us unity and strength. Father, especially as our officers contemplate decisions about this building or a possible move, we ask that you would give us wisdom that we might do only what is best for your people who are a part of this congregation, that we might do only what is best for your kingdom. Father, you are the God of all comfort and protection. And so we bring before you all who are in any way afflicted, all persons oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. Hear us as we name them and their needs in our hearts before you now. Father, truly be with those who are hurting and suffering. Grant to them every consolation and comfort of the gospel and overrule all of our present sufferings for our ultimate good. Father, we pray for Lauren Russo that you would grant her and the child she carries health and faith. We pray for those who desire to have children but have not yet seen you grant that desire. We especially pray that you would grant this desire to Donald and Rosemary Beck. Father, all these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. 
And now hear us, Father, as we are bold to pray that which our Lord has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.